0: Oh, and welcome back to Close Reads here on the Searcy Institute Podcast Network. I am David Kern and it being Close Reads, I am joined by Angelina Stanford and Tim McIntosh. Now- our
2: names, don't you find our names just sound so disappointingly plain after reading this book? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I hadn't thought about it that way, but now that you mention it.
2: I mean, we're just so Kern, Stanford, McIntosh. I mean, you know, there's not a funky fibs between us. It's just a shame. Now-
0: if if it had been that the first name was Kern and the last name was Stanford Macintosh and it was hyphenated, that would fit in.
2: Yes, Stanford- and what would your nickname be?
0: Well, hmm. I don't know why you're saying you're this would be me.
2: Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> all right, what would the nickname of the amalgamation of us be?
0: I don't know. I feel like that's what we're going to have to leave to the listeners. But I can tell you yes, th- the th- one thing that all three of us feel very strongly is that there are no moments in which one should ever ask oneself do trousers matter yes um, I'm, I'm firmly
2: on team jeeves about this the mood <laughs> will pass trousers matter
0: hey we, <laughs> we Friends, are here.
2: I, I, I implore
0: you. <laughs> for for anyone who is just happening upon this show and didn't listen to the previous episode we are talking about pg woodhouse's novel the code of the woosters the woosters however you want to say it i people were teasing me shall we say for saying Woosters, and I actually thought about this and how to say it and I went with Woosters against my better judgment um
2: you win American
0: I did how, I did how disappointing he does, he does spend some time in in uh <laughs> in America and some of the other books so very true so I, I you know make up for it that way but hey um Tim you're quiet so far you're tired you're at an event you're making time for us so what's what's going on with you
1: I I write for a company that does. Um, Say no more. You write for a living. We understand. <laughs> I do. I write for a living, and one Thus of the things the I,
2: exhausted sound <laughs> in your voice.
1: Yeah, right. The company that I that I write for uh, is contracted by large nonprofits, most often Christian organizations. The one that I'm. And they contract with me to basically help the people who present uh, to donors at this weekend uh, uh, develop the speeches that they give. And so I am at one of our clients' presentations to some of their donors. It's a really great organization that does a lot of work in Haiti. So... Hmm. It's just, these weekends are so much fun, but they're also, they're kind of exhausting because it's meeting all of these, it's kind of like a Searcy conference. Like I love the Searcy conferences (laughs) and then I go home from the Searcy conference and I just want to sleep for about a week. It's just, I don't know why they're so exhausting. Do you, do you guys
2: feel exhausted at the end of Circe? Oh my God, I was thinking only a week. It takes me like <laughs> six months to recover. That's what Cindy yeah. Rowland says too. Our theory is that because it's a group of introverts pretending to be extroverts for three days and then it takes like six months to recover from that.
1: I think there's a lot to that because th- that is the thing that for me is so exhausting. Like I, I, love, I love talking to everybody. Like I feel as home at those conferences as any conference that I've ever gone to. But it's all of these new people that like maybe you've met once before, 12, 24 months earlier. And you're like, oh, I know that I know you. And I know we had a conversation. But anyway.
0: It's, of it's course the question in my mind talk is... Talk on a podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I think I told
1: you guys this story about when I was... Probably six months after we had started doing the podcast, I went to... I think uh, it was a Thursday when the CRC conference was beginning.
0: Is this going to be a story about how you sweated when you met someone?
1: (laughs) Yeah, I probably was sweating. (laughs) I was eating the hors d'oeuvres kind of at the pre-conference get-together. And I'm talking with someone. And this, this woman turns around and she said something, something, Tim McIntosh. And so because she said my name, I thought to myself, oh, I must... I must have met this person before, but I don't remember her face. And I'm usually really good at remembering faces. So I said, hey, nice to see you again, but I'm sorry. Tell, tell me your name because I, I we must have met, but I just, I can't remember. And she says, no, we've never met, but I listened to close reads. And that was <laughs> the first time when I thought, oh, like this is what happens when people hear your voice. And you don't hear their voice, you know, when people yes. listen to a podcast that you're on. I,
0: I get that effect at homeschool conventions or conferences. Oh, like do you I'm, really? Because I'll be talking to someone in the booth and then someone will be walking by and hear my voice and turn and be like, I listen to your show and then keep walking. <laughs> Um, <laughs> nice hey, to see we, you too. Yeah, we are here to talk, as I said, about uh, Jeeves and Wooster and uh, the Code of the Woosters. Uh, before we get to that, though, I just want to say a quick word from our friends over at Ohio Christian University, which is a values-driven institution that prepares students to become servant leaders engaging their world. OCU's main campus is located in Circleville, Ohio, just 30 miles south of Columbus. At OCU, you will experience personal relationships with all professors through small class sizes. They have a 10 to 1 student to faculty ratio, so it's a big deal to them that professors know their students' names and have relationships with them. Um, Ohio Christian University is committed to teaching a Christian classical worldview that is taught throughout all of their 30 degrees and majors from programs ranging from business to ministry to teacher education. Um, and it's a private school at a public school cost. Earning a four-year bachelor's degree at OCU will cost you less than half the total price of average completion fees. So if you go to OhioChristian.edu, you can schedule a campus visit or even apply online. Uh, and their phone number is one 7 ocu now So that's 1-877-7-O-C-U-N-O-W. And thanks to Ohio Christian for sponsoring Close Reads this month. Um, Also, just want to... One other word of business, so to speak, we did record our bonus episode on True Grit, the movie, and that episode is now posted on the Patreon page. So if you are not a uh, Patreon supporter right now but would like to hear that podcast, which I should add is one of my favorites that we've done in a while, um, then you can head over there and I, you know, for as little as two dollars a month, you can you can get access to that and other bonus podcasts and and talks by Angelina and Tim and and so forth. So, uh, all right, the business. The business is out of the way. Oh, can we
2: add one more businessy thing just to sure. say that the uh, Kindred West conference is next week and I hope to see some listeners there.
0: Yeah. If you are going to be in Colorado uh, for Kindred West uh, with uh, Cindy Rollins and Heidi White speaking as well, then you can make sure you go up to Angelina and introduce yourself and do a, th- But make sure her back is to you and you say something, <laughs> something, Angelina, and then do exactly what happened to Tim just now. Or what Tim yes.
2: And shimmer over to me, shimmer yeah. over to me or, or, or float f- over to me. Or you flicker. Know. Yes. I mean, don't walk it's so boring, you know, <laughs> make a Jeeves move. Just come up to me and say, yes, sir.
0: So one, one thing I was noticing is on Facebook, people seem to be enjoying our conversations about this book, but. Oh yeah. There's something that is, is um, <laughs> odd and dare I say disturbing about (laughs) yes say
2: dare you say it because this is how I feel dare you say it
0: (laughs) what I want to know Angelina and Tim is why so many people (laughs) who are listening to this show in our little audience own cow creamers (laughs) and yes I mean what what is going on
2: and uh, the shocking number of photos of cow creamers and here I thought this was just a figment of Woodhouse's imagination (laughs)
0: I mean, I, didn't, I knew they were a real thing, but I didn't know they were a real thing that people owned, and especially in 2018. So my first question is, why? And my second question is, what for? And my third question is, well, Angelina, I think you have a comment about all these pictures that you're seeing. I
2: do. I looked at those pictures, and I thought, oh, it's clearly modern Dutch.
0: You guys have all been ripped off. <laughs> I feel like every time I look at a picture of a cow creamer, I need to make some, I, I've been like contracted to make some kind of critical look at, look at them, <laughs> but, but I obviously I can't do it because the light's just not right on a, in the Facebook photos. So.
1: Can we make sure that we're like, I feel like I need a decent answer to the other question you asked David, why? Like, I mean, <laughs> yeah, not, not just why do people own cow creamers? My question is even grander than that. Why do cow creamers exist? It's like an <laughs> oh, ontological to go existential
2: right here. Go ahead. It's
1: absolutely. It's an Why ontological question about the existence of a, of a...
2: Why does Mr. Tra- Why is Mr. Travers willing to trade a human being for a cow creamer? This is an even deeper question.
0: <laughs> it's true, which brings me to my real question about this show <laughs> and this book. Is this, is this book actually secretly about deep stuff? Like something real. Or is it just funny? Is it meant to be a bit of fun, what Graham Greene would call it, entertainment? Or is it actually about something serious? And I don't mean to take us, you know, into a serious direction. But is Woodhouse one of my two questions today? And this is the quicker one. Is is this book about something serious? Like, is, does it seem like to you guys like Woodhouse is doing something serious or attempting to do something serious here?
1: David, I'm open to the possibility that he's doing something serious. I don't know what it would be. Do you have a hunch about? Could you kind of get me into that atmosphere?
0: Well, I was as I was reading it, I was thinking it'd be really funny if someone read this out loud in the tone of voice of like a pulp crime novel, (laughs) because it's so first person. (laughs) It's like if you gave it the perspective of like a noir uh, private eye instead of a bumbling. British aristocrat. I was totally thinking that'd be that really especially funny.
2: with the subplot of him reading the detective novel and what would the detective do in the book and I'm going to trust him. It
0: was well, totally I, work. and that's one of the things I love is that he's Bertheus uh, there's obviously this mystery theme going throughout it because every now and then it comes back to the fact that he's making more progress in reading his mystery story and then something from his real life interrupts him. Yeah. And so I want it's like how much of his imagination is what's you know how like when you're a kid or an adult and you see a movie like a superhero movie like or or you're reading a novel about some hero or something i think it especially happens with movies like you'll go see a movie like um where there's fast driving or like spider-man and there's good fighting or whatever and you come out of it and like all you want to do is like drive fast yeah. I'm wondering if maybe like Woodhouse or Bertie Wooster's imagination is taking over and he as he's reading the story his imagination is so easily like um shuttled into imp- intrigue exactly yeah so intrigue I, like the the, I like the way you put that yeah he shimmers into intrigue and so the intrigue of the book like is captivating his imagination and so he begins to see everybody around him like in a different light or maybe his imagination is just so conditioned by that kind of reading in general. I've never thought about that before, but it got me wondering if that's why Woodhouse is dropping all these references in. And even where there's even the part where Stiffy talks, is talking to, um, it's talking about how she had a conversation with, uh, um, the, the cop and the cops like the first thing you do is find motive. And then like the last thing you do is look for clues. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And how that's like, and they're all just so trusting of, literary detectives um but well, i don't know yeah,
2: the, but I think that that points to their sort of disconnect with reality right
0: the characters or the detectives yeah, the,
2: the era the aristocracy
0: right, they live, right they're
2: living in a fantasy world all of them in in this book and so to go back to your earlier question is he doing something serious i suppose we would have to define our terms i i don't think that woodhouse set down to be Dostoevsky. <laughs> um but I don't think that he just wanted to make people laugh. I think that there's absolutely some, sat- some satire going on. And satire is meaningful and is meant to point out the folly and foibles of human beings. And in this case, more than just human beings, but a, a particular class at a really intense transition time in the world and in the history of Britain, which we've, we've actually looked at a lot of novels in the post-war period. I think he's doing the same thing in his own way that all of these people are doing. And
0: Yeah, I think that. I think it can't really be overstated the degree to which um, post war artists were using the novel to explore the the present condition and and you know just like Graham Greene or um, whoever Hello? else I'm here. Can you guys? Can you hear me?
2: Yeah, you just I I didn't know if it was my connection. I lost blanked you. Blanked out for
0: me also, David. Okay. Oh, well, I was just sitting here happily talking, but what I was saying is that well, I don't think it can be overstated the degree to which um post-war artists the novel became the sort of quintessential way to explore the post-war world and it's clear that as you said Wooster's or uh, G, uh Woodhouse is adding his voice to that conversation through through this sort of the sort of film. absolutely
2: and where Bride's Head was a little should we say darker um more mournful which more that sense of loss he's he, this is light. it's obviously a light treatment and we're not supposed to like cry and have an existential crisis or anything but except I mean, if you're talking about always, the
0: existence of cow creamers
2: well i shed a few tears of the possible loss of anatole i mean that's some serious human <laughs> rights violation going on here with these trades
0: <laughs> fair point fair point
2: <laughs> so
1: actually, i don't think the book is i don't think the book is s- satire though if we have i think it's a comedy. I mean, I think a satire is deliberately inflating something, making something a caricature with the intention of pointing out the reality kind of behind the caricature. I I don't read this that way. I I think that he's inflated um, the personalities, especially of Worcester. Well, I guess all of the characters except for Jeeves, but I don't. I my I don't sense that he's doing it to make a a bigger point. I think he's doing it to make us laugh.
0: Okay. So, hmm. so you disagree, Angelina? Your your um, wordless exclamation there suggests you disagree.
2: <laughs> I I've it may just come down to to semantics between me and Tim. I do think he wants us to laugh. But I, I never read it in all my years of reading Woodhouse without also thinking he was making a post-war comment on the aristocracy, on the future of England. I mean, you know, Bertie's hardly the best and the brightest to be leading England into the next generation. So <laughs> I, I, I can't help but, 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 and I'm in the back of my mind as I'm talking, I'm thinking maybe you just read too much into everything, which is highly possible. But I've always read it as a as a social comment, not heavy. Hmm. it's not a cry for revolution or anything, but.
0: And that's okay. So basically what you guys are both kind of getting at is you're being, you're sort of sitting on the opposite sides of what I was thinking about as I was reading and why I asked the question. And I don't, I don't know a hundred percent know that like, I mean, unless you, Woodhouse were sort to of tell us that we're never going to get a specific answer, I suppose, but um, at least on any given work.
1: <laughs> I, I think of it, David, like this, I think about like, what are, what are quintessential what are the paradigmatic examples of satire?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think the first things that comes to mo- the first things that come to mind, Animal Farm is the first thing that comes to mind. Um, Gulliver's oh, Travel gosh. comes I don't, to mind. I
2: don't read Animal Farm as a satire at all. I read it as an allegory.
1: Well, it is most certainly, but I think it's a satire. I mean, it's deliberately. Animal Farm is not terribly f- funny. It is funny at points, but, um, I don't think that its intention is to make us laugh as much as it's to point out the reality that's behind the story.
0: Well, I know. So would you say that so like yeah, genres, See, there's, I am there's working on a totally
2: different definition of satire. So it is a question of semantics, I think. Between us. So, I'm going with like the literary definition that satire is when you point to the foibles and follies.
0: So I know, well, in Tim's defense on this one, I know that Orwell actually did refer to it as a, he, believe, he thought of it as a satire. Um, a satire of what? Well, Stol- he also Stol- called it a fairy
2: story, so.
0: <laughs> well, I'm just saying. So, uh, so yeah, maybe there's that that satirical um, that definition is being maybe he's bending it a little bit, maybe as, as Tim is or whatever. But it might be that there's like genre, and then there's the spirit of the, There's a spirit behind something. Yeah, so that's, that's probably that's a true. helpful distinction.
2: Yeah, I would agree with that.
0: So that, like you could be operating within a genre within the principles of a genre, and then there's then you can be also just presenting the spirit of satire, even if you're not even if you're not thinking in terms of satirical genre.
2: I would agree with that
0: um, I think
1: I mean just for the sake of the conversation I really it's my conviction that this book that we're reading is its primary purpose is to make us laugh and it's extremely it's successful it's such a funny book like every paragraph just kind of I find myself waiting for the moment where I have an excuse to laugh
2: yeah, whereas yeah. I
1: think something like again to use Animal Farm or maybe even Gulliver's Travel or Um, Catch-22. You guys read Catch-22 by Joseph Heller?
0: It's been a long time for me.
1: So let's stick to Animal Farm. I don't think the primary intention behind that book is to make us laugh. I think it's to highlight something that to address head on. uh, I think if Orwell had written a kind of faithful journalistic expose of what was happening during the rise of the revolution and um, the real characters involved in the rise of the revolution. I don't think it would have as powerful an impact. There's something about the displacement of the characters into farm animals and the exaggeration of their attitudes and
0: do you mean because Crime. it because it manages to successfully if for lack of a better word shame them like the goal of satire being to shame or correct
1: oh gosh yeah it yeah or to or to at least highlight a situation that's um because it's a reality people don't recognize how egregious it is
0: okay do so okay so then do you think angelina if if you view um you you do view code of the wooster's as something of a satire then right
2: oh well i mean i would say it's satirical quality rather than a true satire
0: okay do you what what goal do you think um woodhouse sets out to uh, to to achieve in this in in terms of the satirical part i think we all agree that he's obviously trying to make us laugh and that's the that's probably the primary thing going on here but as far as the satirical element of it that you would argue is there? Is he? Okay, is, so, do you think he is trying to um, shame or shed light on on the negative aspects of this post-war British aristocracy? All
2: right, so I'm going to go on a limb and just and, and think don't out worry, loud.
0: everyone. We are just going to talk about funny stuff in a little
2: bit. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just going to think this out loud. Like I actually just I don't believe that laughter is the end in itself about anything. Like I would be really hard pressed to say the point of that was just to make me laugh. Um, I guess I think more like the Shakespearean fool that that the the fool the comic the the one who can say and do the stupid things it's always he's always the one who all carries the truth. We have that in our stand-up comics where they can get away with the most biting political and social and cultural commentary with the jokes. And because they make you laugh, they can get away with it. But they always have a bigger point than that they just want to make you laugh. That's why they choose the kinds of jokes that they do. They're, they're always trying to get you to think about something and not just laugh. And, and, but even if making you just, sometimes being able to laugh at ourselves is also the point, right? But it's not just to ha ha, but to, to maybe not take ourselves so seriously and be hung up on the things that were hung up and, or even to have a moment where we laugh about something particularly human. And then we all have this common moment, like, okay, we're all humans. Humans are all weird and stupid, and we all have these stupid moments, and we can laugh about that. So for me, and maybe this is just a case of me thinking too too much about things, I mean, even if I watch stand-up comedy specials on Netflix, which I love, I'm always hearing the social commentary. And so I hear it in The Code of the Worcesters, too. I can't I can't separate what he's making me laugh about from the fact that they're all really foolish. And they need to be laughed at, and the whole the whole system is collapsing. But I don't think it's heavy; like it's not a, it's not a treatise on the dying aristocracy. But it's written at okay. a time when yeah, everything's yeah. in flux and transition, and I think he has something to say about that.
0: So, so it's not like you're you're arguing it's not like a thesis or a treatise. I, no, I've been trying to make some grand statement, but it is, in its own way, asking us to laugh at this negative side. Of things.
2: Right. So maybe I would say, I think it's meaningful humor.
0: Okay. Tim, do you buy that? Not that I'm setting you in opposition to each other. Right. Or anything. I don't, I don't mean that I'm just, you know,
2: right. No,
1: I don't know. I think it's a very fruitful comparison to compare, um, f- you know, to compare what we're talking about to stand-up comedy. Cause absolutely like i can think of plenty of stand-up comedians maybe the most famous that comes to mind is lenny bruce i mean he was he was making his audiences laugh and he had a very serious purpose behind it and i think like richard pryor had a very serious purpose behind it but i think also of somebody like jim gaffigan um who's do you guys know jim gaffigan yeah yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. Terrifically funny. I don't think there's a whole lot going on there behind. He just wants to make you laugh as hard as he can for an hour and a half. And hmm. um, I think the novel that we're reading is is more complex than Jim Gaffigan. I, Jim Gaffigan is hilarious. And to be as sort of like purported to be as goofy as he sets himself out to be is a work of great intelligence and talent. So, um, I'm not calling him simple by any means, but I think he has a little, a, a little bit more of a simple purpose than somebody like Lenny Bruce or Richard Pryor, which I do think there is a surface of laughter and behind that there is a social purpose behind it, a reforming purpose behind that. And I just think of those two cat of those two comparisons I would put woodhouse closer to Jim Gaffigan and I would put somebody like um Jonathan Swift closer to Lenny Bruce
2: I don't necessarily disagree with that I don't like I don't think woodhouse is a revolutionary I don't think it's like a call for social change um but even like with Gaffigan's humor, the little bit I've seen, a lot of it is finding the humorous moments in like the daily drudgery of our lives and parenting and family life. And, and, sort, and so I would like still say that that's meaningful. Exactly. Finding the humor in the mundane, which helps us to see the common human experience. So I would say that even that is meaningful, although I would make distinctions. I, I, I don't think it's politically driven or... yeah. Heavier. I mean, I would agree with that. I absolutely agree that Woodhouse is light, and I and I wouldn't say that he has an agenda. He's not a revolutionary. He's not a call for for, let's dissolve the aristocracy. Right. But I I don't know how. Don't know how anybody could read this and not walk away with, gosh, these people are all idiots. I can't believe they run our country. (laughs) And and how many times, Birdie comically refers to his you know multiple century genealogy that's that's pretty poignant because it's it's pretty pathetic
0: yeah okay i want to talk about that that's something i want to i want to say the old
2: feudal spirit jeeves
0: yeah which is the name of one of their another other other novels or maybe it's a collection of stories but um oh, i just pulled the uh, headphones out of the jack so if you're speaking i can't hear you um but um okay one question i have is i want to think about what it is that actually makes him so funny, and funny in a way that has lingered for a long time. So Woodhouse or Birdie? Woodhouse in particular. So, um, here's what I here's what I'm thinking. I need to run down the hall and grab a charger. So while I'm doing that, it's gonna take me thirty seconds. So what I need, what I was thinking is, um, it's live TV, folks. Yeah, let's have. <laughs> I could, yeah, we could just take this out, but why would we do the go to that kind of work? Um, the common human experience, David, we've all been there exactly. Uh, What I'm curious is could you each kind of give two reasons why you think um PG Woodhouse is so funny? And but but when you're considering that, why not just that he was funny to people in the 1920s, 30s, or whatever it is in in England, but why like people from rural Nebraska? can laugh at what's going on here despite it not being their experience you talk about human experience um common experiences there is something common you know human about it but it is certainly not their human experience and even the language and the colloquialisms and things like that are very different so given that why is it that he is he why he is so funny and why he has remained so funny for new generations Well, for subsequent generations um so if you can come up with like two things each um angelina i'm gonna let you go first on that and and then tim and then i'll be back so, Angelina, you still might be talking when I get back, but uh, I mean, <laughs> ready, I'm not going to be going that set, long. Go, so, all right, ready, ready set, go, David. Ready, said go.
2: <laughs> wow, that's a tough question. Um, maybe it's Woodhouse's light touch and the fact that the audience knows more than Bertie Wooster does, even though it's a first-person narrative. Like, does that make sense, Tim? Yeah, like, oh, yeah. Like, we talked so about that like, last week. Right. So much of the humor is that we understand more of the situations Bertie is in than he is, even though we are seeing the situation through his eyes. And I think that's, I think that's really funny. And, and, but also because he has this naivete about him, like Bertie's just, how would I describe Bertie? I would not want to be married to (laughs) Bertie. I don't even know that I would want to be friends with him, Mm -hmm. but if he was in my social group, I might find him wildly amusing. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I'm back. I've no. I, don't, I completely disagree with everything you said. But
2: good, perfect, go.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, Tim, your turn. I
1: I think this is going to sound so mundane, but I just think he enacts a humorous, dramatic narrative about four times on every single page, and. Mm-hmm when you get so it's
0: <laughs> you mean
1: like Here's what happens over and over and over in this book and it never stops being funny a thing will happen spode will get tied up in a sheet with after being slammed with the uh frame of a painting and we know that spode is this kind of like fire hydrant of a man right he's just like ready to create violence okay so, um, Worcester in a fit of, I don't know, over, uh, zealous confidence ties him up in a sheet, you know, he gets knocked with a painting and after all these event happens, then our narrator Worcester will stop and he'll comment. And the comments to me are the things that happen over and over and over. And it's where, like, the, so much of the humor is. There's, a, there's some humor in the dialogue, but so much of it is the self reflective commentary on an event that is happening or just happened. And the kind of humorous structure is um, you might be thinking, dear reader, that this was a <laughs> foolish move or something like that, right? It's kind of like, the opening it was a warm and balmy day and then it gets as we get deeper into the narrative he kind of explains his internal thinking and then it ends with kind of like the climactic humorous moment of this narrative arc and it's usually some sort of malapropism or Worcester unwittingly making self aggrandizing comments about how wonderful or thoughtful yeah. he is. Or sometimes it kind of concludes with him talking about how um, terrified he was that he just wants to run out of the room and, you know, hide under his mother's skirt or something <laughs> like that. And he just, I mean, seriously, the book is just that little reenactment event, opening commentary, closing commentary laughter. And it's, it happens over and over and over and over. And it's, and it, what I think it does is it almost makes these kind of like grooves in the consciousness of the reader, the same way that a, that a joke does, you know, a joke typically has, you know, three parts, you know, I walked into a bar and oh, yeah. was talking yeah. to a priest you know, that's your opening. And then there's a middle and then there's kind of like the punchline and you just, once you hear enough of those from Rodney Dangerfield or whoever it is, you get used to it and you start giggling before they get to the punchline because, you know, you're ready for that punchline.
0: Yeah. The setup is the the setup is you're being tickled by the setup before you even get to the the actual funny part.
2: And I think what you're saying connects back to what, to what I said, because I think the reason that those self aggrandizing statements work is because there's such a naive innocence about birdie. I mean, otherwise somebody who's constantly pumping their chest about their heritage that they came along with William the Conqueror. I mean, that would be an annoying person. You would, want would. To shut up, but it's hilarious here because there's just this childlike innocence. So I found some examples when you were talking. So in the scene that you were describing where he, he wraps up Spode in the blanket, he said, and the fact that there's like this pause in the midst of what is an intense action scene, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> he pauses to say, It's a long time since I studied this subject, and before committing myself, definitely I should have to consult Jeeves, but I have an idea that ancient Roman gladiators used to do much the same sort of thing (laughs) in the arena and were rather well thought of in consequence. And then then immediately goes back to suppose.
0: Yes. One of my favorite passages. so
2: funny.
1: Can I I read another one on 158? Yeah, Um, please. I cannot say, despite the courage dash which I have exhibited, in the above slab of dialogue (laughs) that it was in any too bobbish a frame of mind that I made my way to our destination. In fact, the nearer I got, the less bobbish I felt. It had just been the same time I allowed myself to be argued by uh, Roberta Wickham into going and puncturing that hot water bottle. I hate these surreptitious prowlings. Bertram (laughs) Wooster is a man who likes to go through the world with his chin up and both feet on the ground, not to sneak about on tiptoe of his, uh, with his spine tying itself into reef knots, which is kind of exactly what's happening. That's exactly what he's doing. He's going around on tiptoe. One okay, I have thing- another
2: one. As go long as we're it. doing this, yeah, go. Uh, it's in the same. on the same Spode scene. So he says the thing about the Roman gladiators. flips back to Spode, trying to get out of the the blanket, and and then he gets grabbed. He gets grabbed by the coat, right? 'Cause he hesitates. And then this is his comment. It was a serious disaster, of course, and one which might well have caused a lesser man to feel that it was no use going on struggling. The whole point about the Worcesters, as I've have had occasion to remark before, is that they are not lesser men. They keep their heads, they think quickly, and they act quickly. Napoleon was the same.
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so funny. A comparison with with gladiators and then Napoleon and in- It just goes on and on.
0: Well that and that's to your point. Like there's a structure to it, like there's almost a structure to the joke, like right. So he he presents this sort of thesis, Woosters are great, this is why they're great. And then the real joke is the comparison, (laughs) a completely outrageous comparison. And he'll do the same thing with similes.
1: Before we get to Napoleon and the passage that Angelina read. You're giggling before you get to Napoleon. I mean, at least I am. I'm like, I'm primed to laugh because the setup has been repeated so often. I'm and, and it's so funny so many times that by the time we get to this occurring for the 48th time in the book or however many times it's been, I'm ready to laugh before I hear Napoleon, not unlike Napoleon.
0: <laughs> right, and structurally, <laughs> one of the things that works so well about that, like if you're structuring a joke or whatever, is that... If he just said the the Woosters are like Napoleon, and he kind of made a little funny quip, we'd be like, "Ha Woosters aren't like Napoleon." But he gives this whole like semi-poetic diatribe about what makes Woosters great and how they have the stiff upper lip and how they endure and how they're tough and all that kind of stuff. And then he drops the Napoleon joke, and then that causes you to think back and re- think about all the like, just think of, to imagine Napoleon himself being a Wooster. Mm. So there's the there's the <laughs> there's. There's like the thesis, and then there's the punchline. But the punchline brings you back because it's not only just reflecting on Wooster himself, but it's kind of making you. It's creating an image that is that is funny in and of itself. Like Napoleon as this sort of overwrought, uh, young, moneyed aristocrat uh-huh. Uh-huh. whose whose world is fading away. <laughs> and part of the humor
2: like... here too is that these just absurdly kind of pointless conflicts right that they're involved in yep. get get blown up in this huge not just like drama wise because we all kind of do that but but given the historical proportions of william the conqueror and napoleon and roman gladiators and 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 it's funny because of course Bertie's imagination is not matching up with the reality and that's funny but it's also funny because the aristocracy don't really fight any real battles anymore he's never going to be in waterloo he's <laughs> Right. he's not gonna fight right. alongside william the conqueror this is literally the battle of the aristocracy now so of course points to that whole yeah, you I, guys are I, useless idea
0: they're fighting over butlers cooks and miscellaneous trinkets
2: yeah That's collections so, so they're right doing. they're battling over collections of silver and people and people <laughs> who are hey, okay. pawns
0: yeah yeah um yeah, that's true. Yeah, that that's actually probably a pretty useful word for the, for the conversation. Okay, do you each have one other thing? Because then I want to kind of break down a scene and look at the ways that the particular scene works. In other words, I want to close read the scene. So um, Angelina, do you have one more and then, or Tim, let's go back, let's do you first and then do Angelina. So, you, yeah. so one other reason why Woodhouse is maintained, like why he's still funny.
1: I think his uh mangled metaphors, he he compares the noise that his aunt makes to him, this sort of like huffing noise because she's upset with him, to to like a buffalo at the water trough or to a and it's and it's kind of so, it's so funny because and maybe I put too much thought into this, but like, okay, buffaloes were not know, domesticated about animals lot. for the most part. They, so they didn't drink. They drank out of rivers and streams and ponds. They didn't drink out of water troughs. He does compare his aunt to whatever, a water buffalo or whatever it was, which is probably roughly an accurate metaphor, but there are so many of those things. Like he clearly has the capacity to make very good, vivid metaphors, but he deliberately mangles them or twists them to, I think, great, great comedic effect.
0: Yeah. If you were trying to, if you were reading a serious book that was trying to use and stretch some of the metaphors that he's using, you would say, well, that's a little down the nose or that's too far. But, he, yeah. Or it's like, it's not it's not consistent with the world that you're creating or the or whatever um but here he can do something that's completely sort of far afield thematically but it worked and but that's sort of why it's funny and yes. it's partly because of perspective or voice because because it's not woodhouse doing it it's wooster doing it like if it yes. were woodhouse doing it you'd be like that's careless but because it's wooster it's like it's careless it's funny because it's careless because it's uh-huh.
1: very intentionally careless angelina
2: Okay, I was trying to think of an answer while we're talking. <laughs> okay, so this is what I'm going to come up with. Everyone loves a good comic duo, and this is a fantastic comic duo. We've got the silly guy and the straight man in hmm. Birdie and Jeeves, and it's they play off of each other so brilliantly. So just the comic duo. Hmm.
0: Um, okay, that's a perfect segue then. If you would turn to chapter 9, page 188 because what I want to do here is, um, break down. I don't Well, maybe breakdown is the wrong. I don't want to like tear it apart, but I want to kind of, I want to read through this, some of the scene here. This is the birdie goes to Pop Stiffy's ass. aunt to pretend uncle. I mean, to pretend that he is interested in marrying Stiffy. And so I thought about doing the scene with Spode and all that, but that scene is so sort of, um, like everybody was laughing at that one. That's kind of an obvious reason why it's funny. But these scenes are funny in sort of not as slapstick a way. The spode scene is funny in a slapstick way, like if you did it on yeah. stage, it'd be hilarious. But this is funny in more in ways that are more subtle. And I think anybody can do well, not anybody, lots of people can do slapstick funny. But when mm-hmm. you can be when you can be consistently funny in, in in this sort of way, um for a long time and and maintain that, that's what I think or that's what I think makes these books stay funny for a long time if you will um so
2: does it seem seem a little like marx brothers to you like it's almost a little vaudeville thing happening here with the speed of it
0: i hadn't thought of that
2: i have not thought of it until we were talking about the dialogue and then i started putting the time together and i don't know
0: maybe maybe yeah because it does happen fast
2: it happens fast, and I'm thinking of all these Groucho Marx one-liners that you kind of miss if because it goes so fast. But it's the same kind of subtle humor.
0: Well, uh, yeah, and you can compare that to say, like a Billy Wilder as well, where you have these setups. Like, think, um, what's the one with um Tony Curtis and they the cross-dressing one. Um,
2: some like it hot.
0: Some like it hot. Yeah, so, like you watch a movie like that. I just like watched that.
2: this the other night.
0: Yeah, John, One of Josh Gibbs' favorite movies, by the way. So, yes, if it you is. If you watch that movie, the setup is funny, right? These two guys are on the run from the law. So they dress up like women. They get in this troop of these women actors or dancers or whatever. And that's how they escape band, the law. David.
2: A female band. A, band, that's a girl right. band. Yeah. A girl band.
0: Yeah. Right. And then um, one of them, while dressed like a woman, falls in love with Marilyn. All this kind of stuff. Like the setup is funny. But it's the constant barrage of one-liners and the dialogue that makes us still watch it. 60 years later or whatever it's not because mm-hmm. like lots of movies have that setup but it's the execution of the setup and the personality of the characters and how they express themselves that makes us want to watch it even though we can watch movies that have color now
2: <laughs> and you um, have that same kind of comic doer where jack lemon is like the over-the-top physical silly one and the other right, one's the yep, more straight man yeah,
0: jack lemon and tony curtis that's what it was yeah mm-hmm. um or you even see it in probably my favorite movie ever um the apartment which is another Billy Wilder movie starring Tony uh, Jack Lemon. And that one's the, set, the setup is not, it's actually a dramatic setup, but the execution of it leads to some of the most hilarious scenes because of the one liners and because of the sort of uh, jokes that, you're, that, that he comes back to, the way Tim was referring to. And it's a lot of it's like language jokes. So in The Apartment, the main character is always talking about, um, or he picks up this sort of way of saying something where he puts the word wise at the end like time-wise or dinner-wise or whatever. And at first, this just sounds like something he says, but then as it goes on, that plays into the humor of it because it's this sort of return, this return joke. Um, and then when you, but when that return joke is sort of uh, wrapped into the structure of the story, it makes it makes it actually reflect in a humorous way on the story and keeps it from being like melodramatic. Um, and I think- One of the really-
1: of Go ahead, is, David.
0: I think that's some of what happens here in chapter nine with the way he uses language, um, to maintain the humor of this scene. So, but go ahead, go ahead.
1: Bing Crosby and Bob Hope. Did you guys ever see any of the like the road to Bali or any of those road to movies
2: long time ago?
1: Yeah. Yeah. My dad had on this kind of two hour special about Bob Hope and I was walking through the living room the other day and I was like, Bob Hope, you know, it's kind of my grandfather's humor. And then I just, I paid attention for 10 minutes. Bob Hope. Bob Hope was hysterically mm-hmm. funny. Bing Crosby and Bob Hope were hysterically funny. And what's interesting is the gags and the jokes that they did. I think they did six movies together. It's like Road to Bali, Road to, I can't remember the name, Morocco, maybe. They play these characters and the characters are really well-defined um Bing Crosby's kind of like the schemer he's always got a plan he's always <laughs> up to something Bob Hope is a little bit of a, a you know he's easily duped and he trusts Bing Cros- Crosby he's always going to go along with what he says but unfortunately Bob Hope is usually the one that kind of suffers because of what Bing Crosby is doing so it and In all of those movies, they just play out the dynamic of that role over and over and over again in the same way that Worcester and Jeeves play out the dynamic over and over and over. And it makes me think that part of what's so funny about these books is it's almost like when you're you're a child and you just want your parent to do the thing that made you laugh or smile, yeah. you just want them to do it over and over and over to the point that the parent is just kind of like, okay, it's been 16 times, baby. It's time to move on. But the kids, you know, as a child, you're not ready for it to move on. And I almost, it's it's like kind of like, without going into some sort of um, like child psychology interpretation, I think it is kind of like a... a restoring childhood a little bit that we almost get permission to ask for the same thing to get done over and over but there's enough variety within it that we don't as adults get bored
0: it's like the uh well you see that in in like the classic family guy joke that everyone talks about where not that you should watch family guy but there's the one where stewie or whatever i don't i only know this one scene he's he's talking to his mom and he's going mom Mom, 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 mama, mom, 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 And it goes on for like four minutes or something, which is an eternity in, in a show. And then it just keeps on going on. And at first it's funny and then it's annoying. And then it's really, it gets funnier and funnier as you go just because of the consistent, because of how absurd it is. Also because that's what kids do. Um, <laughs> let's talk, let's, let's um read chapter around here. Angelina, do you want to, um, do you want to, carry us here for a little while by reading from the beginning of chapter nine he begins with his chapterly admission every chapter Bertie birdie admits what he admits in the first paragraph
2: all right so just stop me when when you're ready to switch it off okay it has been well said of Bertram Wooster by those who know him best that there is a certain resilience in his nature that enables him as a general rule to rise on stepping stones of his dead self in the most unfavorable circumstances.
0: Hold on, it I gotta pause. That sentence makes no sense. It's, <laughs> if, if this was a real writer, we'd all be like, okay, that guy needs an editor. That's like Faulkner. If yeah. Faulkner didn't actually know how to write. Uh-huh. You could, it's like Ezra Pound.
2: <laughs> but it works no, it it's does dirty.
0: exactly and it, that's what makes it the fact that it's a terrible nonsensical sentence with, with no clear subject <laughs> is what makes it funny
2: and that he means it as this intense praise of himself and self-evident right
0: yeah exactly exactly <laughs> yeah yeah okay carry on i won't stop you every sentence i don't think
2: well you might have to <laughs> it, and that I failed to keep the chin up and the eyes sparkling. But as I made my way to the library in pursuance of my dreadful task, I freely admit that life had pretty well got me down. It was with leaden feet, as the expression is, that I tooled along. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Such like a... it's He's got this high... For lack of a better word, this highfalutin sort of diction and cadence to his writing, and then he ends it with tooled along
2: yeah to that that anticlimactic humor that just that punchline that you that uh, my okay yeah maybe this is gonna my daughter says that's my humor she calls it the misdirect that i make you think i'm going somewhere and then i abruptly go the other direction my children are very analytical. And so years ago, she she said, this is your humor. And I was like, that is exactly it. So maybe that's why I love Woodhouse so much, because he does the same thing. He takes you on this highfalutin sentence and then throws that slang right in there. And that was hilarious.
0: <laughs> or they have these long sentences, and then he's got the sentence, which feels like it's going to be long, and all of a sudden it just ends. and You're, yeah. of, you're kind of... You're well, kind you of feel like he's going to
2: set up this metaphor and this sense of doom, and, and but it's I tooled along.
0: <laughs> it was with leaden feet, as the expression is and then
2: it's <laughs> done. Stiffy had compared the binge under advisement to a visit to the dentist, but as I reached journey's end, I was feeling more as I had felt in the old days of school when going to keep a tryst with the headmaster in his study.
1: Funny word You're by wrong. the way. Yeah, yes, right. right. A romantic a hidden romantic interlude. Trist.
2: <laughs> but Bertie often does not know the meanings of the words he uses right, right he exactly ask, he always has am i using that right <laughs> well said sir
0: <laughs> <laughs> but that's only in the scenes he doesn't ask as the narrator right. of the story he's right. not he gives is not his editor Jeeves is his advisor in the scene right. which is sort of what makes it sort of what makes it additionally funny
2: oh gosh I'm going to laugh so hard. Okay. You will recall me telling you of the time I sneaked down by night to the Reverend Aubrey Upjohn's lair in quest of biscuits and found myself unexpectedly cheek by job with the old bird. I in striped, non shrinkable pajamas, he in tweeds and a dirty look. (laughs) On that occasion, before parting, we had made a date for half past four next day at the same spot. And my emotions were almost exactly similar to those which I had experienced on that far off afternoon as I tapped on the door and heard a scarcely human voice invite me to enter.
0: There is something super creepily, like, he keeps using this sort of romantic.
2: Yes. Like,
0: from a tryst to to a date um to the, his emotions um you know like he's talking about his emotions and like the idea of tapping on the door secretly and the scarcely human voice inviting him to enter <laughs> it's like romeo and juliet yep go, go, the only on. the
2: only difference was that while the reverend aubrey had been alone sir watkin bassett appeared to be entertaining company as my knuckles hovered over the panel i seemed to hear the rumble of voices and when i went in i found that my ears had not deceived me Pop Bassett was seated at the desk, and by his side stood Constable Eustace Oates. It was a spectacle that rather put the lid on the shrinking feeling from which I was suffering. I don't know if you have ever been jerked before a tribunal of justice, but if you have, you will will bear me out when I say that the memory of such an experience lingers, with the result that when later you are suddenly confronted by a sitting magistrate and a standing policeman, the association of ideas gives you a bit of a shock and tends to unman. A swift, keen glance from old B did nothing to still the fluttering pulse. Yes, Mr. Worcester, uh, uh, could I speak to you for a moment? Speak to me? I could see that a strong distaste for having his sanctum cluttered up with Woosters was contending in Sir Watkin Basket's bosom with a sense of the obligations of a host. After what seemed a nip-and-tuck struggle, the latter got its nose ahead. Why, yes, that is, if you really, oh, certainly, uh, pray take a seat.
0: My favorite Hopkins. part is I'm not even a hundred percent sure that Wooster knows which one is the latter and which one's the former. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I don't know if the nip or the tongue is what wins in this case. I have no idea.
0: And that's why it's so like you normally you'd be like, wait, I've got to sort through the logic of what he's saying here. But here it doesn't even it doesn't it doesn't matter at all.
2: It doesn't matter. I did so and felt a good deal better. In the dock, you have to stand. Old Bassett, after a quick look in my direction to see that I wasn't stealing the carpet, turned to the constable again. Well, I think that is all, Oates. Very good, Sir Watkin. You understand what I wish you to do? Yes, sir. And with regard to that other matter, I will look into it very closely, bearing in mind what you have told me of your suspicions. A most rigorous investigation shall be made. The zealous officer clumped out. Old Bassett fiddled for a moment with the papers on his desk. Then he cocked an eye at me. "'That was Constable Oates, Mr. Worcester.' "'Yes. You know him? I've seen him. "'When? This afternoon. Not since then? No. "'Are you quite sure? Oh, quite.' "'He fiddled with the papers again, then touched on another topic. "'We were all disappointed that you were not with us "'in the drawing-room after dinner, Mr. Worcester. "'This, of course, was a bit embarrassing. "'The man of sensibility does not like to reveal to his host "'that he has been dodging him like a leper.' You were much missed.
0: What I love oh. about that, just, what I love about this is that you know, a lot of times in an analogy, you're going to create a correlation, but I have no idea if he's referring to himself as the leper or a uh, bad, uh, uh,
2: Oh, you're right. You're right. The antecedent is completely unclear. You were much missed. Oh, was I? I'm sorry. I had a bit of a headache and, and went and ensconced myself in my room. I see. <laughs> and you remained there. Yes. You did not, by any chance, go for a walk in the fresh air to relieve your headache? Oh no, ensconced all the time. I see. Odd. My daughter Madeline tells me that she went twice to your room after the conclusion of dinner, but found it unoccupied. Oh, really? Wasn't I there? You were not. I suppose I must have been somewhere else. The same thought had occurred to me. <laughs> I <don't> remember
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> what of I love it. Here's another example. Of, like he uses the word ensconced, right? but ensconce is the exact wrong word to use when someone's about to catch you not telling the truth because it's such a permanent word like if he just said i went to lie down that could have worked but he basically made himself sound like a statue
2: yeah like i was barricaded in my room right
0: (laughs) it's just like that's where the subtle the subtle things show up
2: i remember now i did saunter out on two occasions i see he took up a pin and leaned forward tapping it against his left forefinger "'Somebody stole Constable Olt's helmet tonight,' he said, changing the subject. "'Oh, yes. Yes. Unfortunately, he was not able to see the miscreant. "'No. No. At the moment when the outrage took place, his back was turned. Dashed Difficult, of course, to see miscreants if your back's turned. <laughs> "'Yes. Yes. There was a pause. "'And as in spite of the fact that we seem to be agreeing on every point, "'I continued to sense a strain in the atmosphere.'" <laughs> I tried to lighten things with a gag, which I remember from the old in statue papillary days. Sort of makes you say to yourself, "Qui custidiat ipsos custodes?" what? <laughs> I beg your pardon. Latin joke, I exclaimed. "Qui? who, custidiat, shell guard, ipsos custodes, the guardians themselves? Rather funny. I mean to say, I proceeded making it clear to the meanest intelligent a chap who's supposed to stop chaps pinching things from chaps having a chap come along and pinching something from him. Oh, I see your point.
0: (laughs) Say that seven times faster, whatever. Hey, Tim, pick it up there. Pick it up there, Tim.
1: I see your point. Yes, I can conceive that certain type of mind might detect a humorous side of the affair, but I can assure you, Mister Worcester that this is not the side which presents itself to me as a justice of the peace. I take the very gravest view of the matter, and this, when once he is apprehended and placed into custody, I shall do my utmost to persuade the culprit to share. I did not like the sound of this at all. A sudden alarm for old stinker's well-being swept over me. I say, what do you think he would get? I appreciate your zeal for knowledge, Mr. <laughs> Worcester. But at the moment I am not prepared to confide in you, in the words of the late Lord Asquith, I can only say, wait and see. I think it is possible that your curiosity may be gratified before long. I did not want to rake up old sores, always being a bit of a lad for letting the dead bury the... for letting the dead past bury its dead, but I thought it might be as well to give him a pointer. <laughs> You find me five quid," I reminded him. So you informed me this afternoon, he said, "Prince name, be called me." But if I understood correctly the, uh-huh. what you were saying, the outrage for which you were brought before me at Bosher Street was perpetuated on the night of the annual boat race between the universities of Oxford and Cambridge, when a certain license is traditionally granted by the authorities in the present case. There are no such extenuating circumstances. I should certainly not punish the wanton stealing of the governor's property from the person of Constable Oates with with a mere fine. You don't mean it would be choky, I said, that I was not prepared to confide in you, but having gone so far, I will. The answer to your question, Mr. Worcester, is in the affirmative. There was a silence. He sat tapping his finger with the pen. I, if memory serves me correctly, straightening my tie. I was deeply concerned. The thought of poor being bunged into the Bastille was enough to disturb anyone with a kindly interest in his career and prospects. Nothing retards a curate's advancement in his chosen profession, more (laughs) surely than a spell on the jug. (laughs) You want to keep going? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. He lowered the pen. Well, Mr. Worcester... I think that you were about to tell me what brings you here. I started a bit. I hadn't actually forgotten my mission, of course, but all of this sinister stuff had caused me to shove it away at the back of my mind, and the suddenness with which it now came popping out gave me a bit of a jar.
0: I can actually, I saw... defend, I can actually defend himself. I didn't, I didn't actually forget. I just... <laughs> pushed it to a different part of my brain
2: (laughs) hey before we go too far because i'm sure we'll talk about something else when we go but when he says pince me coldly he verbed that noun did woodhouse invent that (laughs) this is where he started did he start the verbing the noun
0: well i i doubt it i mean i feel like mark twain probably i don't know i i don't know where that comes from i he i think he probably popularized it in highbrow english literature though um, okay. that'd be, that'd I just be noticed that. Did Jane, so... Jane Austen ever do that? I mean, Shakespeare does it no. on occasion, doesn't he? Yeah.
2: But for humor?
0: Oh, right. That, that's a good question. I don't know. Like for the intention of because it's funny to noun that particular yeah. verb. That particular. I, verb. I
2: do that a lot. I'm very Woodhouseian. Apparently, I do that
0: a <laughs> lot.
2: I I verb nouns for humor all the time. That I know it'll be ridiculous when I say it.
0: Well, my guess is you probably got that because you've read a lot of Woodhouse.
2: Um very well could be true.
0: Funny how the things we read impact the way we write and speak.
2: I'm telling you. Uh can we just shake his hand in heaven and be like, high five, you made me funny. Boom. <laughs> okay C- carry on. Oh, sorry. Carry, carry on, on, Tim.
1: I saw that there would have to be a few preliminary poor parlours before I got down to the rub. When relations between the bloke, between a bloke and another bloke are of a strained nature, the second bloke can't charge straight into the topic of wanting to marry the first bloke's niece. <laughs> Not, that is to say, if he has a nice sense of what is fitting as the <laughs> Worcesters have.
0: And this is, you know, he keeps coming back to this next, ep- next episode as a, a preview. I want to talk a lot about what is, it that is, what is the actual code of the Woosters?
2: Oh, good. I um, was just thinking that. Good.
0: And I think what he's doing is he's setting us up to, to sort of be thinking about that later. Um, so he keeps, he keeps dropping in that the Woosters are so great. And, and then the title is the code. So we'll, we'll finish the book conversation by talking about that idea. So something to think about as you're reading. Yeah.
1: Oh, ah. Yes, thanks for reminding me. Not at all. I just thought I'd drop in and have a chat. I see. What the thing wanted, of course, was edging into. And I found I had got the approach. I teed up with a certain access of confidence. Have you ever thought about love, Sir Watkin? I beg your pardon. About love. Have you ever brooded on it to an extent? You have not come here to discuss love. Yes, I have. That's exactly it. I wonder if you have ever noticed a rather rummy thing about it, viz. that that it is everywhere. You can't get away with it. Love, I mean, wherever you go, there it is, buzzing along in every class of life. Quite remarkable. Take Newt's, for
2: example. (laughs) I love when Bernie gets carried away with his speeches and doesn't realize the audience is not having the response he thinks they are. (laughs)
0: He's getting all serious, and then again, he drops newts into it. Are you
1: quite well, Mr. Wooster? Oh, (laughs) fine, thanks. Take newts, I was saying. You wouldn't think of it, but Gussie Fink Noddle tells me they get it right up their noses in the mating season. They stand in line by the hour, waggling their tails, the local bell's starfish, too. Also, undersea worms, Mr. Wooster, and according to Gussie, even ribbon-like seaweed. That surprises you, huh? It did me. But he assures (laughs) me that it is so. That
0: was good delivery there.
1: (laughs) Just where a bit of ribbon-like seaweed thinks it is going to get by pressing its suit is more than I can tell you. But at the time of the full moon, it hears the voice of love, all right, and is up and doing with the best of them. I suppose it builds on the hope that it will look good to other bits of ribbon like seaweed, which of course would also be affected by the full moon. Well, be it as may, when I'm working round to is that is the moon is pretty full now. And if that's how it affects seaweed, you can't very well blame a chap like me for feeling impulse, can you? I am afraid well, can you? I repeated, pressing him strongly. And I, and I threw it in an eh, what? To
0: clench the thing. I would love <laughs> Master this is of Rhetoric. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Little amplification there. Um, I would love to be for this to be like to turn the to adapt this for the stage and then like be blocking this scene. Like yeah, blocking yeah, yeah. While, what is what is going or filming it, you know, may be filming it because you can get a great response shot. But like what is Woodhouse doing or what is Wooster doing while he's giving the speech? Is he walking around? Is he sitting there? Is he like staring out the window? Like you could do it, you could make him think he's you, you could determine a lot about how you make, make it so Wooster thinks about himself just based on how he gives these speeches uh-huh. <laughs> like is he looking out the window longingly like he's you know what I mean like um forlorn Winston, in love is, is he Winston does he think he's Winston Churchill is giving this speech does he think he's eloquent or is he just sort of sitting there and like like how what does he actually think of what he's saying um and or rather what does he think of how he's pulling it off Yes. <clears throat> okay. Oh, I think he's
2: quite pleased with himself right now.
0: <laughs> read, to the an end anyway. of this, read to the end of this page, and then I'll pick it up for a few paragraphs.
1: Uh, you can't very well blame a chap for me for feeling the impulse, can you? I am afraid. Well, can you? I repeated, pressing him strongly, and I threw in an eh what to clinch the thing. But there was no answering spark of intelligence in his eye. <laughs> he had been looking like a man who had missed the finer shades. <laughs> and he still looked like a man who had missed the finer shades. I am afraid, Mr. Worcester, that you will think me dense, but I have not the remotest notion what you are talking about.
0: (laughs) Now that the moment for letting him have it in the eyeball had arrived... (laughs) I was pleased to find that the all of a Twitter feeling which had gripped me at the outset had ceased to function. I don't say that I had become exactly debonair and capable of flickering specks of dust from the irreproachable Mechlin lace at my wrists, but I felt perfectly calm. What had soothed the system? was the realization that in another half jiffy, I was about to slip a stick of dynamite under this old buster, which would teach him that we are not put into the world for pleasure alone. When a magistrate has taken five quid off you for what properly looked at, was a mere boyish picadillo, what would, what would have been amply punished by a waggle of the forefinger and a brief tut-tut, it is always agreeable to make him jump like a pea on a hot shovel. I'm talking about me and Stiffy. Stiffy? Stephanie? St- Steph- My niece? that's right your niece are walking i said remembering a good one i have the honor to ask you for your niece's hand you you what i have the honor to ask you for your niece's hand i don't i don't understand it's quite simple <laughs> i want to marry young stiffy she wants to marry me surely you've got it now take a line through that ribbon like seaweed <laughs> <laughs> I see. That's where the callback comes in, right? Because the joke was set up a couple pages ago through this speech, and then he comes back to it, and he can and Woodhouse himself can amplify the humor by bringing back to the joke. There was no question as to its being value for money. On the cute niece's hand, he'd come out of his chair like a rocketing pheasant. He now sank back, fanning himself with the pen. He seemed to have aged quite a lot. (laughs) (laughs) She wants to marry you. That's the idea. I was not aware that you knew my niece. Oh, rather, we too, if you care to put it that way, have plucked the Gowans fine. Oh, yes, I know, Stiffy, all right. Well, I mean to say, if I didn't, I shouldn't want to marry her, should I? He seemed to see the justice of this. He became silent, except for a soft groaning noise. I remembered another good one. You will not be losing a niece. You'll be gaining a nephew. But I don't want a nephew. Well, there was that, of course. Um, Anyway, um, we could go on and on um, with this. Um... I think we should skip ahead a little bit here because I do. There's a couple parts that I think we should touch on. <clears throat> Hopefully, this is sort of showing. This is a very close read of some of the things that he does well. Um, go to page um, 199. So, Stiffy's in the room now. Um, and she goes, I'll, I'll just pick it up. Because it's where she, he, Bassett says, you can't marry the, you know, she, she says, he says, you can't marry the curate. So she says, mm-hmm. right ho, if I will, right ho, I will. If you'd rather I married for money, I'll marry for money. Birdie, it's on. Start getting measured for the wedding trousers. <laughs> Her words created what is known as a genuine sensation. I like how genuine sensation is like something he has to like, he says, that's what it's, it's what it's called. But it's genuine. Old Bassett's what and my, and my, here I say dash it, popped out neck and neck and collided in midair, my heart cry having perhaps an even greater horsepower than his. I was frankly appalled. Experiences taught me that you never know with girls, and it might quite possibly happen, I felt, that she would go through with this fight, frightful project as a gesture. Nobody could teach me anything about gestures. Brinkley Court in the preceding summer had crawled with them. Bertie is rolling in the stuff and as you suggest one might do worse than take a whack at the Wooster Millions of course Bertie dear I am only marrying you to make you happy I can never love you as I loved Harold but as Uncle Watkin has taken this violent prejudice against him Old Bassett hit the paper fastener again but this time didn't seem to notice it Uh, My dear child, don't talk such nonsense. You're quite mistaken. You must have completely misunderstood me. I have no prejudice against this young man, Pinker. I like and respect him. If you really think your happiness lies in becoming his wife, I would be the last man to stand in your way. By all means, marry him. The alternative. He said no more, but gave me a long, (laughs) shuddering look. (laughs) And then we get that detective thing where, where, because then the scene ends and they leave. Um, And then there's a little code at the end with uh, Stephanie and. Stiffy, rather, and, and Woodhouse. Or not Woodhouse, I, you know, One never knows where Woodhouse ends. Yeah, in, right, right. It's hard um,
1: to, to peel those two apart from each other.
0: Um,
2: oh, and he ends, okay, so I'm noticing he ends He ends the chapter referencing back the joke in the first paragraph. I braced myself with the old Worcester grit. Up came the chin, back with the shoulders. Lead on. So, yeah, you're right. He He does circle back.
0: The callback is making the joke, you know, work uh, and work like work hard for him. But it's also he's building narrative structure out of the joke, which I think is really difficult. It's what you'll see like in a great play or a great movie where the joke there's a visual gag, right? You see some kind of visual image that becomes something that comes back repeatedly and sort of frames the story. But here it's these sort of internal, these sort of internal references that G's or Wooster feels about himself that becomes these structural. Um, like uh, checkpoints, if that makes sense. So, like the joke becomes a checkpoint for the drama, um, which I think is, is, which as far as creating narrative and all that, I think is really interesting. And sort of sort of what you'll see in movies, I think, or, or in plays where you kind of create these beats where a scene will begin and end yeah. on a similar beat. That's
2: very sophisticated.
0: It is, it is quite, yeah. And you know, I'm Weather. thinking stand-up
2: comics do that too. They end their...
0: Yeah, they're set
2: with a joke that's a callback to something earlier, and so you not only laugh at the joke, but you also have this moment of, Oh, well done, you were planning this all along, you know, (laughs)
0: exactly, exactly, gracefully done. Yes, that's a big Seinfeld thing, especially. Seinfeld was, Oh, yeah, um, in his stand up stuff. All right, well, the reason I stopped us reading there is because we could go on forever, and I know that it's kind of an abrupt way to end the show, but I thought it'd be fun to read out loud, like. And just kind of stop and comment on some of the things that were you guys were pointing out there, and some of the things you you mentioned while I was running down the hall, um, for, for, for my cow creamer was um I had I had to pinch a I had a, pinch of, I had a pinch of charger from Graham um, was that some of those things actually showed up in in, in these paragraphs. Um, next time, as I said, I'd like to talk about what exactly is the code of the Woosters that Bertie is so like taken by that he believes so much in and that the book is titled after because all we know right now is that they're an old family that has a lot of money that ostensibly fought with william the conqueror but we don't actually know like what is that all that he cares about like is that the only reason he thinks so highly of himself um which i guess well anyway we'll talk about that we'll talk about that later so Um, one
2: last thing though before we we go for your final thoughts so I've, i've i've actually been really tickled to see how many people have been watching the show and um as as listeners of the show notice, I'm not typically a fan of adaptations. And it's a rare occasion when I would say, oh, watch this to enhance your enjoyment of of the book. But uh, one of the things, this true story, before I started reading this book, I watched a couple of episodes of the show. And the reason that I did that um, was because the language in the book is so essential to the humor. And I feel like as an American I struggle with that, and so watching, the the great thing about those episodes is you hear how the words sound, the British accent, how the names are sound, the pacing and the expression. And so once I got those voices set in my head, when i read the book now i feel like i'm delivering the lines in that little fast kind of british clip and and of course i'm pronouncing things correctly which a lot of the humor is in the pronunciation like the fact that somebody has this long you know multisyllabic name but it's pronounced exactly different than it looks and that's also funny Oh, so, right yeah yeah yep
0: yeah, yeah. all those english like, french english hyphen fresh french names
2: right Right, right, and so all of that's part of the humor. So I'm I'm I was tickled to see how many people said they were watching it and enjoying it, and were watching it with their kids, which I did. I mean, it's there aren't a ton of family shows that are sophisticated where, where enough Where you at watch the it?
0: Adult. Are they on Netflix, Amazon? They're on
2: YouTube. Believe okay. it or not, the whole thing. I mean, I own them, but um, and I'm sure you can get them off of Amazon Prime, but uh, but you can also watch them on YouTube. There there's a playlist, and it goes through all of them. And the Code of the Woosters is season two, episodes one and two.
0: Okay. All right, I'm gonna I I'm gonna go watch that because I actually do want to see how they how they staged this particular. Season. Yeah,
2: I was thinking I was trying to remember. I haven't watched that episode. Yet. I was gonna wait until I finished uh, the, the book, but I yeah, I do want to see how they staged so that. So
0: season two episodes one and two. Maybe we yes. should do a a little short bonus episode sometime oh, on that, on that if fun. we have time to watch it.
2: Because I'm t- <laughs> Hugh Laurie and Stephen Fry are I just they are just pitch perfect in these roles. I mean, ah, hmm. uh, just amazing so good really enhanced my enjoyment
0: and that was around the time that hugh laurie was he was he came up with emma thompson and they were all they were all in the same like acting troops when they were young um and so this is the they can kind of got their first big breaks around the same time i want to say so while she's doing like all those merchant ivory movies
2: right this is early 90s yeah he,
0: he started doing this um and I imagine that was a big deal to be hired as, as Bertie Wooster in early nineties, England.
2: Oh yeah. Oh, it's, it's just, it's just, it's fantastic. And the facial expressions are are great and yeah, it just captures the spirit and really enhances my, my enjoyment. So I was tickled to see people really enjoying those.
0: One thing we have not got a lot of yet is scenes with, with Jeeves and that come, you know, they're, you know, given the, the Jeeves and Wooster stories and how Jeeves captures, has captured the reading imagination, he's actually in relatively few scenes in this book so far. So um, I, it's interesting how he kind of comedically haunts the story.
2: Well, a lot of times the setup, and it's a little bit following that in here, but in the other books, a lot of times the setup is that Bertie gets tired of all of his friends coming to him just to ask Jeeves to help him. So he decides, (laughs) no, no, no. Oh Bertram can handle this, right? And so he won't tell Jeeves and he makes a huge mess of it. And then Jeeves has to come and fix the original problem plus the mess Bertie made trying to fix it. Yeah. And so yeah, a lot of times he swoops in at the end.
0: What is the one with the swans? Um, I can't remember. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> uh, do you have any final thoughts? No, no final thoughts. All right. Well, you get back to your event, get some rest. Um, Angelina, Tim, thanks for joining me once again. Everyone who's been listening, thanks for listening. Uh, thanks to Ohio Christian University for sponsoring. And remember, if you want to listen to our episode um, on the movie version of True Grit, you can do that over on the Patreon side. Like I said earlier, I really, really enjoyed that one. We talked for quite a while about why someone would want to make an adaptation of something, particularly Yeah, something I really mild. found that
2: beneficial. It was a good conversation. I liked it too. And it seems like people were getting good feedback on it too. I think a lot of people have appreciated us raising the question, why do people make adaptations?
0: Yeah, particularly of things they love. And Tim and I were mm-hmm. on the side of, yes, do that. And so we were trying to convince Angelina that, that, that oh, that's an okay thing. Oh, you
2: persuaded me. You did. <laughs> you, you did. You really did. I, I feel entirely different about film adaptations now. High five, Tim. Yeah, y'all did. Y'all, well done. Good job. nicely
0: done, David. Um, okay, well, that's it. That's a wrap on another episode of Close Reads. Uh, enjoy the conclusion of The Code of the Wooster's. We will be back next week. Uh, with, with our concluding discussion and then the following week we will do the Q&A episode. Don't forget if you want to f- see the books that we're reading over the next year or so, you can head over to the Facebook page where I posted them um, uh, as a pinned post or an announcement or whatever they're called now. And we will uh, probably post those on a, uh, on a blog post as well. Or not a blog post, but on the actual podcast episode page on the website for people who are not on Facebook to, to reference it. All right, with that, for Angelina Stanford, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here, Institute. This has been Close Reads. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.
2: Right ho! <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.